0: Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, please take them out to the book of Hebrews once more. As we prepare to inch our way forward just a little bit through Hebrews, we are in Hebrews chapter 7, we'll begin again reading at the 11th verse, and uh, join me in standing out of, reading, out of reverence for the reading of God's word if you would please. Now therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar let us pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us wisdom as we think about change and we think about the way that you change the world around us. We ask, God, that you would make us faithful agents of change and help us to be faithful, Father, with the change that you produce in our own lives, to not be stymied by it nor stifled in it, and also, Father, to be faithfully speaking the truth so that those with whom we come into contact might be changed for the sake of the gospel. God, we ask for your grace to be upon us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Anybody here a great fan of change? You guys like change? <laughs> change is hard. There's a lot of difficulty in it. It's hard for us because we find familiarity to be comforting, even when it is destructive. Um. We take comfort in the known, ease in that which is predictable, and joy in those predictable paths. Ritual, tradition, habits, these are all part of the problem when we begin to address the fundamental changes in our lives. How many diets or new goals or jobs or friendships or even marriages and families have been destroyed by a basic inability to leave behind that which was before? What we've always known is often so much more attractive than the unknown mystery which lies just around the corner. But the old is not always best, and the past is usually best left there. God calls us daily to dwell with our eyes upon the future and to steadfastly trust in that which he has prepared. And in no place is that more apparent than when we consider our religious practices and how we approach God. So, immediately, I want to begin at the most basic ground that we can, and that is the truth that change is required. Now, somebody's going to look at me and say, well, why do I have to change? And I'll tell you bluntly, because you are a sinner. (laughs) We are all corrupt in every part of our being, and corruption must be put off. Look at Romans chapter 13 with me. Romans chapter 13 And we'll just read a few verses beginning at verse 11, but listen to how Paul addresses the church at Rome. He says this, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife or in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Corruption has to be put off. The the old things of the flesh, the things of, of sin, the things of the old man, these are to have no part in our lives. They are to have no part in how we think, No part in what we do, no part in how we interact with one another, no part in how we interact with the world around us. God calls us to be holy. And this is one of the fundamental problems that the message of the gospel faces in this modern day. Because so many churches and so many who name the name of Christ have compromised this message. And they have turned the gospel into something which says, We want you to be happy. We want you to have this pretend relationship with God based upon your willingness and your work and based upon you and instead of receiving from God the forgiveness that is found only in the blood of Christ because that forgiveness calls us to holiness. When a man has been touched by Christ and has been changed by Christ, God calls us to be different than what we were. He demands us to change. He doesn't hate us when we don't get it right, but it should always be the target. It should always be that upon which we are aiming our lives, this putting off of corruption. And Paul puts it this way. He says, look, the day is all—it's over. It's far spent. I mean, the, the time for it is done. It's time for us to be something other than what we were. Now, who among us doesn't recognize that always, right? That's why there are such things as New Year's resolutions and and all that nonsense. We do that because there is something in us that says, what I am is wrong, I don't like how I live, I don't like what I'm doing, I don't like the things in my life, I want to change them. And so God calls us to change. But the difference is, is that when God calls us to change, He calls us to change by his grace, by his power, and for his glory. He calls us to change in this one fundamental way that changes everything else. He calls us to run to him. He doesn't tell us to stand on our own, to dig down deep, to grab your bootstraps and lift yourself up. He calls us to run to him and to cry out our need because he always answers that cry. But there has to be a determination in us To put off this corruption and to not play both sides of the fence. Because if you're saying to God, God, please forgive me, even while you have no intention of stopping what you're asking him to forgive you for, you're not really asking for forgiveness. You're asking for permission and he's not going to give you that. There has to be an intention to put it off. There has to be an intention to set it aside. Sin must be repented of. Acts 3, 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What is the fundamental problem with sin when we think to ourselves, I get to leave this in my life? What, why is it a problem? Because God hates sin. Right? God hates sin so much that He will not abide it in His presence. So a person who says to themselves, I can continue to live the old way that I've always lived. I don't need to worry about my sin. I don't need to change anything that I'm doing. I don't need to be altered in any fashion. I can continue on this way, and I can still have this God that I've just made up. What they're going to find out at the end of all things is that the God who is has nothing to do with them. Because sin keeps us from God. Sin keeps us from coming into His presence. Sin keeps us from a relationship and a fellowship with God that is good for us. So what God says is, turn from your sins, repent. Come into my presence. Because it's not that God says to us, oh, I won't be tainted by your sin. He won't be. But the point is, is that when you're embracing your sin and you're loving your sin so much, the holiness of God drives you away. You want nothing to do with him. You want nothing to do with a holy God. Think about it like this. How many of you have ever been um, changing something in your life that fundamentally alters friendships? Maybe you used to be a drinker and you understand that there's nothing more off-putting to somebody who drinks than somebody who used to drink. Right? Because the person who used to drink is a, well, they're an accusation just by their lives. They've stopped doing the thing that that was ruining them, and so to the person who's drinking, they're looking at the one who's not drinking anymore, and just the fact that they got it whipped, by whatever means, my point is just that that whole dynamic is ugly. They don't want to have anything to do with them, and it will end friendships, and it will alter relationships, and it will change lives just by doing what is right. And you can look at any sin and know that when you used to love sin and you no longer do, it's going to alter relationships with people who still love sin. Does that make sense? Yes. So if you are pursuing God, you need to recognize that His holiness will keep you at arm's length if you're not pursuing holiness. You're not going to want to be around Him. Because His very holiness itself will convict you. His very holiness itself, without any other action on His part, even without the indwelling of the Spirit, even without the the testimony of the Word, or the the effect of Christians in your life, just coming into the presence of a holy God will convict an unholy person. And you have this testimony from Scripture throughout. When Isaiah encountered the, the, the... pre-incarnate Christ in Isaiah chapter 6, and he saw him high and lifted up and seated on his throne, and the glory of his robe filled the temple, and Isaiah saw him, his immediate response is, woe is me. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It's a very specific woe. It's a very specific thing. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that there was something convicting about Isaiah's life when he saw a holy God. And beloved, hear this. If you're seeing God as he actually is, that will always impact you. Because God's holiness is convicting to our unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. Always true. We have to repent of sin. Holiness has to be the target. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Pursue peace with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Because in the end, our sin is nothing but rebellion, and rebellion must be exchanged for obedience. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, ultimately, when we talk about change, what it is implied, but I feel the need to say it directly, is that for change to do any good whatsoever, that which is old and broken must be replaced with that which is new and perfect, not something else broken. Amen. Amen? Somebody who's trying to quit drinking, to come back to that and to pursue that just because it's easy for us to get our hands around. The guy who is a whiskey drunk doesn't make his life any better by switching to vodka. You understand? It doesn't make your life any better if, well, I don't drink whiskey anymore. Now I just drink beer and lots of it. Not going to help. It's not going to change the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that you are chasing after something to fix something in you that only God can fix. That's the fundamental issue. Because honestly, no matter what they tell themselves, nobody drinks that garbage because they like it. They drink it because they want something from it. It's been a hard day. Got to get the edge off, right? I just need I just need a beer or two. Just got to take the edge off. Just got to stop. Now, this isn't a sermon about drinking it because this applies across the board to all of our sin. You understand? There is no sin that we engage with, that we embrace, that we cling to ourselves and hide in the little dark corners of our hearts that doesn't do this to us. It doesn't matter what it is. You can take your pet sin and insert it here where I'm talking about alcohol. Because you're running to that sin to do something for you that only God can do. That's why the Scripture says that to the satisfied soul... Even the honeycomb is loathsome. It tells us something important about fighting sin. The only way to really fight sin is to be so saturated and enamored with God that you don't want it. That's the only real fight against sin. You're never going to have victory over sin if all you're trying to do is get rid of something. Jesus alluded this when he was talking about the demons, right? He said, you know, a demon, you cast out a demon and and it goes out from the person and it wanders the land and then it thinks to itself, I'll go back to the old guy and it comes back and it finds the house neat and clean and put in order and he comes back and brings 20 of his friends with him. And the end condition is worse than the first. Because all of nature abhors a vacuum. So if all you're trying to do is get rid of something, prepare for failure. The only way to solve it is to be filled up with the glory and the presence of God. The only way to solve it is for God to be more important and more in you than you ever had anything else. So now, all of that has been said to bring us to the idea of a new priesthood. Because when we talk about the Old Testament priesthood, what we're talking about at its heart is how does a man come to God? How does a man come into the presence of the Holy God and not be destroyed by God's holiness? The Old Testament priesthood was a temporary measure that was designed to give the people of Israel a way to communicate with God without being destroyed. That's what it was for. It did not fundamentally change anything in them. And at least part of the reason for it is that the priesthood was corrupted from its beginning. Turn to Exodus chapter 32. While you're turning, I'm going to set the stage for you. Exodus 32 comes after Exodus 20. Right? Because we all can count. At least those of us over the age of 20. We'll assume that the the younger ones can, but given the state of public education, I can't make any promises. 32 comes after 20. What happens in Exodus 20? Ten commandments are given, right? Most of us read this sequentially and say, this happened all much, much later. But we miss something important when we do it, and it's that the Hebrews and the Middle Eastern and the Eastern mind tell stories in circles. So what we're about to read in chapter 32 actually takes place while Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. So chapter 20 and chapter 32 are actually happening simultaneously. So while the commandments are being given... And and you say, well, how in the world do you know that? Well, let's read and we'll see. Exodus 32, starting at verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, right, what's going on? Where's Moses? He's on the mountain talking to God. It took 40 days for Moses to get the instructions from God that are the Ten Commandments and all of the vision for the temple and all of the Levitical law and all the things that we see here, God was giving him this, and he was on the mountain for 40 days. So the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. And they gathered together to Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, there's a couple of things wrong with this right away. Did Moses bring them up? No, God did. Right? And they know where Moses is. They can see the thunder and the lightning going on in the mountain. What they're really saying is, we don't know this God. And since we don't know this God and it's thundering and lightning up there and there's all kinds of strange things, we're actually afraid that Moses' God ate him. We're scared. And we're scared because we're operating from a position of ignorance. We don't know God. We don't know who he is. So what we want you to do, Aaron, is to take gold and make for us gods that we do know. How do you know a God if you don't know the real God? It's really very simple. You make him up. He's a figment of your imagination. He becomes your little pocket friend. He hangs around with you. He does what you want. Because he's not really a God. He's just yours. He's your pretend. And beloved, there are many, many, many in the church today who only know God in those terms. He is their pretend. They've made him up. They've ignored his law. They've ignored his book. They've ignored his instructions. They make a God according to their own desire and according to their own satisfaction. And that God is not real. The only God who is real has spoken to us in his word. And we take him at his word and we understand what he has said because he tells us who he is. That's the only God that is real. The rest of them are all made up. So Israel came to Aaron and they said, hey Aaron, make us a God that will take us back. We, we don't know what happened. And so Aaron, being a righteous man of God and a good priest, says, absolutely not, go away. No? That's not what he said, is it? Aaron said to them, break off the gold earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. I want you to notice how specifically Aaron was involved in this work. He did the work. He made the calf. Aaron, the man who will be priest. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I do need to point out how ridiculously quick we are to forget even what we have just said. Because didn't they just say that Moses brought them up? Right? No, no, no. Moses didn't bring you up. This little golden cow that you just made out of your earrings, that that brought you up. Well, how did he bring you up when he wasn't there five minutes ago? Hard to say. It doesn't stop us from being silly. The truth, that is. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Now what's doubly offensive about that is that we read here in the scripture, and where you see it is the word Lord. It is all in caps. So this is the tetragrammon. He used the proper name of God. I've made my little golden cow, and tomorrow we will have a feast to Yahweh. Boy, so they rose early on the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now we're going to skip over all the part where God threatens to destroy Israel and sends Moses down, Moses uh, having learned something important about the nature of God in the midst. That's a sermon for another day. I want to keep our attention focused on Aaron and the corruption in the priesthood. So skip down to verse 21. Moses has arrived on the scene and he is preparing to wreak havoc. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin on them? And Aaron said, don't don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they're evil. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. And they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Oh, well, look. Voila. Yeah, that's it, right? So we see this ridiculousness. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, For Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. So before we go any further, I want to just point out to you one of the fundamental purposes of those who have been entrusted with teaching and speaking on behalf of God and interacting with people on behalf of God is this function of restraint. God calls us to be a positive influence on the culture around us. God calls us To be faithful to represent him accurately. And by doing so we become a system of restraint that the world around us desperately needs. And one of the problems with the culture today is that the church has failed to fulfill that responsibility. We have stepped back from the arena of public opinion and stepped back from the arena of public events. And we have said, oh, no, 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 separation of church and state, and we will not meddle in your affairs. And when they tell us how we're allowed to play, we bow to their gods and we say, okay. But first of all, constitutionally, nothing could be further from the truth. But far more importantly, it is not how God calls us to live and interact. And regardless of what the law of the land might say or those who are in charge of it right now might say that it says, which it doesn't, God calls us to obey him and not them. And so the condition of the culture and the condition of the world around us right now, as it is right now, does not lie at the responsibility and the fault of the godless pagan dead people who can only do dead things. It lies at the feet of the church. This is our fault. This is our responsibility because we have not done our job. That's why in Chronicles it says If my people who are called by my name will turn from their sin and seek my face, then I will relent and heal their land. This is ours. We've made this mess. And having made this mess, it falls to us to be faithful to our God to do the things that he puts in front of us to fix it. Not to go hide in a corner, but to actually engage with the culture and to do the things that God has given to us to fix it. So we have this responsibility and we have this corruption in the very beginning of the priesthood. But it doesn't stop there. Skip forward to Leviticus chapter 10. God corrected Aaron and kind of sorted some things out. But apparently the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because in Leviticus chapter 10, we have this very disturbing encounter between God and Aaron's two sons. Leviticus chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me. I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So when the people of God and the people who have been called to represent God and to teach his truth and to lead the people, choose to make up God's law according to their own desires, this is what happens. And I think that it's not too much of a stretch for us to see the condition of the nation around us and understand that we are living in the days after the fire came out from the altar and destroyed. I think that what we're seeing is the consequence of that. And I think that it's important for us to understand that we still have a responsibility to speak the truth and to do what God says according to His ways and not ours according to His truth and not our ideas, according to His commands and not our preferences. And beloved, this brings us right back to change. Because we have to stop doing things in the ways that we used to do it because that's not according to His truth. We need to examine our lives and examine our opinions and examine our positions and say to those around us and to ourselves, I will stand for what God has said regardless. And if that offends you, deal with it. Get a helmet, life is hard. Right, that's a great quote. I love that statement. (laughs) Ultimately, we have to recognize that we are not responsible for somebody else's feelings if all we're doing is speaking truth. And we need to speak truth gently, compassionately, graciously, but unapologetically. For God's truth is God's truth. And I, for one, do not want to be consumed by the fire of the Lord because I have chosen to offer something that somebody else wants me to offer instead of what God has said. Amen? Amen? The priesthood didn't just start out poor and end up poor in Aaron's sons. There is a long history of abuse and neglect. So we're going to fast forward a few centuries and go to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, and we'll start at verse 1 and read through verse 10. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed up those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, Nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my flock at their hand, and I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep. And the shepherds will feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. See, God established the priesthood, but at this point in Ezekiel, he is very angry with how things have been going. And it's important for us to note that neither the wickedness of the people nor the corruption of the priests could force God to remove the priesthood until it was time for him to reestablish it as something new. But their dependence upon it also could not prevent him from doing that when the time was full. See, ultimately, one of our problems with change is we think that if we don't do what we're supposed to do, if we just hold on long enough, we won't have to worry about it any longer. If we can just wait this out, it'll be okay. Well, you may not have to worry about it any longer, but it's not going to be for a reason that you might enjoy. See, God calls us to obedience, and he calls us to recognize that the obedience that he demands of us is not optional, He will bring about what is best. And in the end, he brought about a new priesthood in Christ Jesus. And did you notice the language of verses 8, 9, and 10? I will establish for myself a new shepherd. I will shepherd my people. Does that sound familiar? Do you hear something ringing in your head? Maybe Jesus talking about being a shepherd? Look at John chapter 10. Actually, before you turn to John, let's just read a little bit more in Ezekiel. It becomes a little plainer if we just read the next five verses or so. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples, and I will gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all of the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture, and on their folds shall be the high mountains of Israel. Therefore, they shall lie down in a good fold, and feed in rich pasture of the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and I will bring back what was driven away and bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Look at John chapter 10. Jesus speaking to this very same issue. John chapter 10, starting also at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling He who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep. That would be the false shepherds that God was rebuking earlier. He doesn't care about the sheep because he is a hireling. He sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep. He flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the sheep, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that in the end, the priesthood, the old way of doing things, the old passions, the old paths, they're done. He is now the only way for us to get to God. And this means that the old things have to be set aside. The order of Aaron had fulfilled its role. It had been the means to come to God. It had been the means by which people might know what it is to be forgiven. But the effectiveness of any religious action is solely dependent upon the pleasure of God. Why was the Aaronic priesthood effective for a season? Even though they were corrupt, even though there was all kinds of problems, why? Why? Because God said it would be so. God, by His own pleasure and for His own purposes and according to His own good will, said, I will accept the blood of bulls and goats and sheep and doves in place of the blood of the guilty. I will count it because that blood will be satisfying to me. Did, did anybody force God to do this? Could anybody force God to do this? No. No. It worked because God said it would work. Not because there's some kind of religious backdoor that that shapes the the, the way the cosmos functions. That has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the specific will and pleasure of God. And since God said that he would accept what was going on in the Old Testament law of, of sacrifice and everything else, Then he accepted it until the time came that he would no longer accept it. And beloved, hear this. That time has come. Obedience to the Old Testament law will not produce righteousness in any way. It cannot. Because that era has been closed and Christ has come. We do not get to just make up how we come to God. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 21. Tell me now, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman and was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman, through promise. Which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. See, it is no longer a path to righteousness to obey the Old Testament law and think that you're going to be saved because you have fulfilled what the Old Testament says. These are the bondages spoken of. And it's not those things alone by any means. But you can think about the dietary restrictions. And there are huge chunks of the church today that are saying, well, the church is in error because we are not obeying the dietary laws of the Old Testament. You're not supposed to. If you really want to obey the dietary laws of the Old Testament, stop eating meat. Go all the way back. Right? Because until after the flood, people didn't eat meat. They were all vegetarians. So if you really want to obey the dietary law, go be a vegetarian. It's not going to save you. It's not going to change anything about your relationship with God. Well, the church is wrong because we're not obeying the feasts and the Sabbaths. You're not supposed to. You're not Jewish. Those things have some cultural appropriateness for those who are ethnically Jewish, but they are not salvific in any way. They are not going to produce righteousness. They are not going to save anyone. Because the only reason why they were effective for their season is that it was the pleasure of God that they would be so. And it is no longer the pleasure of God that they would be so because those things have been replaced by the death of Jesus Christ. And any return to those things is a rejection of what Jesus did on the cross. No question about it. No room for maneuvering. It is either Christ and Christ alone or nothing. That's all there is. So when people say, well, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to live according to those laws. They do not understand what they are saying. There will be no return to animal sacrifices that will bring pleasure to God and justification to His people. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It can't happen. And there will be no time in history when God removes the righteousness given by Christ whereby people who return to the Old Testament law will be saved by their adherence unto it. And the people who espouse these things and teach these things are lying. And maybe they believe it themselves, but they are lying to themselves as well then. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and it will be so until the day that we stand before Him on the day of judgment. And the only question that will be asked of you in that day is, are you mine? Amen. That's it. Nothing else matters. Do you belong to Christ? This is a completely new priesthood. This is a completely new way for us to come into the presence of God. Just as it was Aaron's job to usher the people in the Old Testament into the presence of God by the blood of the sacrifice, so it is Christ's job to usher those of us who are found in Him into the presence of God by the blood of His sacrifice. By the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, we are acceptable in the sight of God because it atones for our sins. And instead of simply setting them aside, as we're told in Scripture, the Old Testament did, it actually atones for and pays for our unrighteousness. Because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but the blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, we have to understand that the old has gone and the new has come. And we have to be on our guard for anything that would replace Christ and his work with ours. So all of the religious observances that are stacked up in places, perhaps it's praying the rosary or or making sure that you're attending mass or or maybe it's praying to Mary or praying to the saints or maybe it's something more Baptistic-like, you got to make sure that you're Sitting and standing at all the right times, and you gotta be there, and you gotta tithe, and you gotta all these different things. None of those things are gonna have any righteousness brought to you whatsoever. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And all of your obedience is done out of love for him, and that is the only reason for it. Amen. That's it. God calls us to take him at his word, and there is a season for new. Even though we are cautioned to not be quick to change simply for its own sake. Proverbs 24 verse 21 says, My son, fear the Lord and the King and do not associate with those who are given to change. Why? Well, because change for its own sake is not necessarily the right thing. Change for its own sake just expresses dissatisfaction with the current state of the world. It doesn't express any inherent desire for what is true and righteous and good. God calls us to take him at his word and to believe him for what he says. He calls us to trust him. He calls us to walk in his truth. And he calls us to be transformed, to be made new. We read the verse this morning. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to the world and its ways. Do not be conformed to the old ways in any way, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. We've gone through this. We read it this morning. We spoke it together. God's word says to us, this is what he calls us to do. To be changed for the sake of righteousness, to leave the old things behind, and to cast ourselves fully upon Christ and Christ alone. Because in the new priesthood, there is no history of sin. Do you understand that? You want to cast yourself upon Aaron and upon the Old Testament? You are casting yourself upon that which was ruined from the start. In fact, before Aaron and his sons could offer any sacrifices on behalf of Israel, what did they have to do? They had to offer sacrifices for their own. They had to offer their own sin sacrifice. They had to offer sacrifice for their own rebellions against God. But what the scripture tells us about our high priest is this. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. Jesus Christ has no personal sin. He never did anything wrong. Over the course of his entire life, he was flawlessly obedient to the law of God. He completely fulfilled everything that the law instructed him to do, and he completely stayed away from everything that the law instructed him to avoid. There was never any point in the life of Christ that he was not completely obedient to and absolutely in love with God. His entire life. And yet he died the death that was due for the sin of God's people. He took our sin upon himself. He paid the price for our rebellion. He died in our place and he drank our portion of hell. And he did all of this with no personal sin to atone for whatsoever. He was flawless in every way. And he came for one reason and one reason only. And here's the news shocker, guys. It wasn't because God missed you and couldn't stand the thought of eternity without you. The reason why Christ came was because it was the plan of God to save a people. And he came to fulfill that plan. And yes, we are loved of God, which is why there is a plan. But the motivation of Christ is primarily love for God. And loving God means you love those who God loves. Do you understand that? It shapes the way we see the world. Because, let's be honest, I'm very clear that I am not everybody's cup of tea. I know this. But I'll be honest with you. There's people out there that are not my cup of tea either. And some of them are Christians. Do I have the right not to love them because I don't in my flesh like them? No. Why? Because I love God. And if I love God, I am obligated to love those whom God loves. You understand? It changes the way I deal with people. It changes the way that I deal with the church. It changes my interaction with the church it should it should for all of us it should give us a responsibility to the body of Christ to say because you are beloved of God so also I love you and I want to be a part of you I want to engage with you I want to hold you up I want to serve I want to minister Christ unto you I want to be an active participant in what God is doing in you because I love God this is our grounds this is why we do what we do It's why the body functions well. It's because we love God. And if we love God, it comes out in how we love each other. Does that make sense? There should be no confusion in the mind or heart of anybody who sees a healthy church, whether or not they love God. Because they will see the love that they bear for one another. In fact, Jesus put it to his disciples this way. He said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, in that you have what? Love, Love, one for another. So if you don't love the body, it might leave the door open to question. Do you love God? I don't know. You're robbing yourself of the largest opportunity to show that you love God. We're to be actively engaged in loving the body. We're to be actively engaged in what God calls us to do. This is because we love him. It's why Christ came. Matthew 26, 42, Jesus praying a second time. He went away and prayed saying, Oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. What was his motivation? Oh boy, I get to die. No, no oh boy, I get to go home. No. What was his motivation? I love you, God, and I want to do what you tell me to do. Beloved, that shapes us in every way. He came to create a way for us to be truly and finally forgiven. No longer trapped in an endless cycle of continual sacrifice because his blood was sufficient to remove our sin forever. His blood was sufficient to take away that which keeps us from God. And he came to do that, and he came to do that work so profoundly that there would never be any need for it to be done again. There's no need for anybody else to help him. So this garbage that the Catholic Church is teaching about Mary being a co-redemptrix and a co-mediatrix and a co intercessrix with Christ simply denies the sufficiency of Christ and makes of her a demon. Because anything that replaces Christ is demonic. In fact, it is Antichrist according to Scripture. That's why the Puritans believed that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. Why? Because Christ is everything. And for us to obey Him and to walk in obedience unto Him, we have to live this out. We have been delivered from sin and delivered from its ravages and delivered from this cycle of empty religious observance that never fixes anything. Look, I don't want to keep beating on this drum, but just think this through. How many Christians do you know who look at Catholics and say, well, they're good Christians too? A lot. It's a very common trope right now. It's a very common thing that people say. But do you understand that they have so little faith in the death of Christ or in the intervention of Mary that they all believe that when they die they're going to go to purgatory and be punished for their sins for millennia and eons and eons and eons. What good is this? Does it save anyone? No. It's hopeless and it's powerless because Christ is not at its heart. We who know Christ and love Him, have to fight for this truth. And we have to fight for it first in our own heads and in our own hearts. We have to fight for the reality that Christ is everything and Christ is the only thing. Because if we don't, we're already sliding down a very slippery slope. Christ came to give us everything that God had demanded for us. And this is the heart of it all. This is the change that we need. And this is the change that God provides in Christ. It has nothing whatsoever to do with our actions of righteousness. Because our actions of righteousness are empty. They have no worth whatsoever. Jesus says that our righteousness is filthy rags when he's speaking to us in Isaiah. It has everything to do with his action of substitution. He alone has fulfilled the will and the purpose of God. And in doing what he did, he has given us a clear and unfettered path to God. Do you understand that? If you are found in Christ, there is no barrier between you and God. None whatsoever. There is nothing that can keep you from his presence. Not even your own failings, because when God sees you, He doesn't see you, He sees Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You are the righteousness of God when He looks at you. He sees you pure and holy and completely accepted. He sees you as you are in Christ. This is your inheritance. This is what it is to have a priest who is worthy of the name. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And Paul gives us this in his own final analysis on the law and our relationship to it in Philippians. Turn to chapter 3 of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 3. We who are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Boy, there's a boast. Concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. We have it in scripture, it must be true. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. Being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is a man who kept the law. He obeyed every single commandment that was humanly possible to obey given in the instruction of the law. And he took all of his own righteousness, all of his own action, all of his own activity, and he said, You know what? It's all trash. It's all rubbish. It's all garbage. It's all sewage. <clears throat> Choose a stronger word in your own mind. I'll try not to say it out loud for you. That's what it is. It's all, it's all that. He says, and I look at all of that righteousness and I say it matters nothing because I have been found in Christ. And that is my one bragging point. And that is my one hope. And that is my one confidence. And that is my one everything. And beloved, hear this. Though we revere and honor the Word of God in its entirety, all 66 books, not any more, not any less, the 39 books of the Old Testament matter, we read them as well. And the law of God and the Ten Commandments is still in effect because it reflects for us the nature of God. But it is in effect for us to guide us as to how to live. It is not in effect for us to in any way make us acceptable in the sight of God. And that is for two reasons. Firstly, only Christ can make you acceptable. And secondly, if you are in him, you are already acceptable before you ever set down to obey even one commandment. God has received you as his own. And he loves you with a love that will never stop. Not because of you, but because of him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, God, that you would give clarity. And I pray, God, that anything that I've said that is wrong or fumbling or, or amiss would just be struck from our minds, erased from the tapes. God, drive into our hearts, though, the truth of who Christ is and all that he has done. Let us find in this great high priest a reason to come into your presence and the hope that we are accepted when we get there. God, we know that leaving the old ways is hard, but we also know that in Christ we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Let us find hope and peace and grace and triumph in him that he would receive the honor that he deserves that the King would be worshipped by all, and that the Lamb would receive the full reward of his sacrifice. And we ask it all in the powerful and precious and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.